Hi, my name is Seth, and I'm the pastor of Perkinsville Church. It's an honor to have you join us for one of our worship gatherings online. I hope it's an encouragement to you, and I want to encourage you to connect with us in a more meaningful way. Joining us in person on Sunday mornings at 8.45 or 11 is a great way to do that. But you can also do it right now by downloading the Perkinsville app or going to perkinsville.org connect. And when you do that, I'll have an opportunity to connect with you personally, and I would love that opportunity. In the meantime, I hope this is an encouragement again, and enjoy a glimpse into the life of Perkinsville Church. We're in Hebrews 12. We're going to look at three verses there as we examine another aspect of Christ's kingship. We've looked at his divinity, his humanity, and we're going to look at the aspect of him as joyful king. If you haven't noticed, I hate to be subdued, but some people aren't noticing, but to my right, things keep getting added each week to represent one element of his kingship from from his divinity to his humanity now to the joy of Christ on the cross. And so next week, Trenton will be preaching Jesus as the warrior king. I really want to preach that one, but he's going to do it. Um, I mentioned already, and I need to remind you, when I talk about joy, uh, as well as we talk about any aspect of, of really the Advent season, I'm not dealing with emotions um, and feelings. We're dealing with just truth. And, and I mentioned to you that joy and grace are inseparable in the scriptures, and they really are. Uh, they actually share um, the way it's described because they share the same root word that, that joy is awareness of God's grace. And so you are joyous because you are aware of God's grace. And so a lot of times I think we're told to be joyful. We're told to be joyous. We're told to, to, to be something that... Um, isn't scripturally how it's designed. Joy is something that, that kind of sits outside of the emotional experience, if you will. It's just, it's just an awareness, no matter what life uh, it gives you, um, because this is the audience of Hebrews, no matter what life gives you, um, there is this eternal truth that withstands and is far better than whatever we're dealing with right now. Um, so, so when you hear joy to the world, right, when those words say joy to the world, like that joy has come to the world. Why? The song says because the Lord has come. So let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. These are, these are objective realities of what happens when the king arrives, no matter how we feel about it. And so today I, 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 I want you to just acknowledge the joy called upon, I think, that we're called towards, but, but the joy of Jesus is what I want to get at. And the author in Hebrews 12, there's kind of the memory verse in verse 1, but, but verse 2 is really where I want to lean um, because it has a fascinating phrase. And we're going to backtrack uh, after we read these first three verses and look at a little bit of chapter 11 because it's really important for the context. So I just want to build a picture of the joyful king and, and what Jesus joyously has accomplished so that we, we may lean in on his joy. So if you don't have any joy of yourself, lean in on Jesus' joy. That'll be the bottom line today. Let me just pray over the, 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 the reading before us. Um, yeah. So, Father, it is your word. It is preserved for the saints of old and for the saints today in this room. But it is your spirit who reveals this truth to us through the reading of your word. And so would you do the work uh, in this moment of cultivating hearts and preparing the soil and grow up uh, from within us a love for your word. Um, yeah. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
<clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The therefore, um, seminary professor said, and I've heard it many times, the therefore is there for a reason, and so you need to figure out why it's there. What is the therefore, therefore? So let's look back a little bit at why he says this statement. Um, it's pretty significant. So chapter 11 is a fascinating turn in the, in, the, in the direction of the book of Hebrews because up until this time, he has been spending a lot of time on both the humanity and the priesthood of Jesus, the high priesthood of Jesus. And then chapter 11, he kind of takes a turn and he starts basically for all of us giving us a summary um, of the Old Testament. This might be called the Old Testament for dummies if this is all we read. Like this is, this is what you get. But it's, it's, it's an understanding of this hall of faith is what it's referred to. And he is just depicting the faith in the life of various people from uh, history. And we read them from the pages of the Old Testament. But I just want to start in chapter 11, uh, verse 32, and just share with you what he's talking about in context. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me. So there's not enough time to tell me, uh, to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to, to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So just pause right there for a minute. This is the context of the hall of faith. And it's important that he talks to his audience about these people because the recipients of Hebrews were experiencing similar resistance, serious opposition, and even similar persecution. So he's saying, this is nothing new. I want you to look back of like the family from which you come. This is important. I think familial awareness. We know our people, like we know our family stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We know about the people from, from whom we came, right? And that's what he's simply saying in the line of faith. This is your heritage. It is something you share with them in common. And you share temptation and trial and challenge. And, and these were faithful people of whom the world was not worthy even. And then verse 39 says, and it's like even in, in, in the midst of all this or in light of all this, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So even in light of all the faith, they were 
undeniably incomplete at the end of their lives on earth. And he introduces this new character to the, to the, to the narrative, us. It's the first time, really, that Hebrews has dealt with it in this way, but now it's us. And so what does this mean that, like, Moses or Gideon would not be saved without Seth? That's kind of weird. Really, what, what he's doing here in the, in, the, in, the, in the central verses of today in chapter 12 and what he's doing in chapter 11 is binding past and present and future generations together in God's purpose. And he's doing it in a way that it doesn't cause us to say, oh, I want to be brave or strong like David, or I want to be a good leader like Moses. He's doing it to show the object of every human heart that has been faithful through every century and every moment in time is not them or us or you or me, it's Jesus. And that's why he says in chapter 12, as he begins there, look to Jesus. Like, you in chapter 11 and verse 37, right? And you're like, man, I mean, 38, how many Sunday school lessons have y'all said in your life that pretty much said, just be like David? Well, that's not what the Bible's saying, though. It's not saying that. Unless you're really good with a slingshot, you're not like David in that way either. That's never been the point of Scripture, to say, just look at the character and emulate their qualities. Now, we can learn a lot from them. But this says that every single one of them was not complete. And they would only be completed in Christ. And so that the direction of David, the direction of Moses, the direction of Elijah or Elisha, the direction of every Old Testament figure in Scripture has been pointing to Jesus. And until Jesus would both found and perfect their faith and our faith, Nothing else would matter. And so if you have a hard time believing that Jesus is joyful over saving you, perhaps you can find joy in knowing that Jesus finds joy in saving Elijah and Elisha and Moses and David. Maybe that's easier to comprehend. Well, I see why that's joyous for Jesus. But see, the author of Hebrews doesn't want you to separate the two, your salvation or David's salvation. Get that. That's pretty huge. And so I just want to make some observations from this text in light of what it says primarily, but this notion that the king, Jesus himself, went to the cross, not begrudgingly. We know he went willingly according to Scripture, but in joy. Now, there's multiple aspects of the cross, not only the hideousness of the cross, the brutality of the cross, the spiritual battle of the cross where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But on the cross, there was joy. For David, for you, for everyone who would receive the mercy of Jesus. And so what does the text now say in light of that? Therefore, right, since we are surrounded by all these heroes of the faith, so to speak, the hall of faith, let us lay aside every weight and sin and cling, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance, right? This isn't a call to, to be an awesome athlete. Why? We look to Jesus. And Jesus is described as two things, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So what is the founder of our faith? Well, the first thing is, is that Jesus and the joy of Jesus, he makes the way in order for us to be saved. Now, that's very simple, but there's also more to it. So Jesus makes the way. The first word used to describe Jesus is founder here, but if you have an NIV, it doesn't say founder. It says pioneer. And I love that translation because it's actually more accurate to what the word's getting at. Pioneer. 
It's the, you take two words and you smash them together in the, in the Greek language and you get two words, one meaning first and the second word meaning to lead. He pioneers the faith. In modern missions today, when someone enters a new territory that is completely unreached, unengaged with the gospel, we call that pioneering missions, right? They're the first to go. They're leading the way so that other missionaries may come in behind them. And that's exactly how the Bible describes Jesus. I love that adventurous kind of side of how the Bible describes him, right? As a pioneer for your faith. He walked first, right? He is the file leader who pioneers for many others to follow or the general who leads his army into battle. There's nothing in the Christian life demanded of you that Jesus himself has not already done. That's the point. Like, nothing that Jesus hasn't already accomplished. Like, you want to grow burdened or overwhelmed by the call of Christian living. It's nothing that Jesus himself has not already done himself. Pick up your cross and follow me, just as I have. There's nothing you're asked to sacrifice, nothing you're asked to give, nothing you're asked to do that Jesus himself has not already pioneered and gone first. And this is why the author says, you better not look at yourself too much. You better fix your eyes on Jesus. Because the first thing you want to do when asked to do something for the kingdom of God is look at yourself. Am I qualified? Am I educated enough? Do I have enough money? Do I have enough time? What will people say? What will people think? What will people do? And that's exactly the opposite of what the text calls us to do. Because 10 times out of 10, if you look to yourself, you'll find a thousand reasons to say no. So look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. J.C. Ryle says this, the secret of a vigorous, powerful, everyday Christianity is to be ever looking unto Jesus. The glorious company of the apostles, he's talking about chapter 11 here, the glorious company of the apostles, the noble army of martyrs, the saints who in every age and land have made their mark on mankind, have turned the world upside down. All, all have had one common mint stamp upon them. They have been men who lived looking unto Jesus. The expression of the text here is one of those pithy golden sayings which stand out here and there on the face of the New Testament and demand special attention. Quite literally, it's looking unto Jesus. You think about fixing your gaze upon Jesus in a given day from the smallest decisions that you have to make to the most impactful and and significant decisions of life. When you look to Jesus, you will probably come up with a different answer than you would have if you didn't. I promise you. When given an opportunity in life, if you step back and look to Jesus, you will think differently about the smallest to the largest kinds of issues in life. I know it to be true of me, and it's probably true of you too. Before you engage in a conversation, there are two options. I know every single time. I know there are for me. It's quite literally, Christianity is not the most confusing thing in the world. Discipline and following Jesus is not the most confusing thing in the world. It is as simple as saying, I look to Jesus. And J.C. Ryle says that is the only thing that faithful men and women have had in common over the ages. But here's what you're looking to. You're looking to a pioneer, the text says. And so the imagery here is a, a person who you're looking upon a massive acreage of woods. You, you, have, you have three ranges to traverse, and Jesus goes ahead and he cuts the trail and flags the trail. So all you have to do is follow it. Unfortunately, for most of us in modern America and throughout history, we walk up to the woods and we say, well, there's a cut trail that's been blazed with flagged with marking tape. I'm going to just try to make it my own way. I'm going to try to blaze my own trail. What you're looking at when you look at Jesus is not a theological system. It's not a dogma. It's not a doctrine. He is a person. 
a pioneer. And so how do you lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely? Everybody's like, oh, tell me how to do that. How do I do that? Do you just try to be a better, nicer, happier person? How many times have you said to yourself, I'm not going to do that again? I don't want to do that again. Maybe a New Year's resolution, that's how you do it. New Year's resolutions, come on. Y'all remember Snackwell's cookies? The healthy cookies? Just enough, enough food to make you mad? It wasn't enough to... I mean, they were, they were born out of, out of resolutions that people don't keep because they were picking up the chips ahoy in February. Resolutions are foolish in this sense because it's not about what you can do or can't do. That's the point of this text. You want to be nicer, happier to people? The problem with all those solutions is you're looking at yourself still. You're gazing at yourself. What can I accomplish? What can I do better? What can I do more of? And the text says to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, right? A big command there. Let us look to Jesus. Lean in more on his life than your own. And what I mean by that is a practical, a very practical and a spiritual exercise. It's amazing how the Bible tells us to take physical postures of spiritual realities, right? Quite literally, that is turning your eyes to Jesus who has already pioneered a path of faithful discipline to God the Father. So appeal to his faithfulness. Appeal to the faithfulness of Jesus. The secret of Christian living, it's not really a secret at all, is to stop looking at yourself or your own strength because that's, that's the path he has pioneered. That that's brings Jesus joy. He leads the royal procession and invites you along. And not only does he pioneer the path, he finishes the task for you. It's his faithfulness that finishes the task. Like, let me just frame that idea again of what I just mentioned. Like, quit looking at your own self. Like, like just imagine this. Um, the joyful king finishes the task is the second part of this. So just, just imagine you uh, go to heaven and you have that accounting before the Father. I don't know how that's going to look, but I know we all have to give an account, Scripture says. Like, what do you plan to present to God the Father or to Jesus? Like, will you have your resume there? Like, do you plan to present... What do you plan to present to the Father when you get to heaven? That's a good, fair question. What do you plan to give an account of? Like, like, well, Father, God, that's what we called you there. These are my most successful moments in life. And then on the other reverse side of the sheet, you'll find my biggest failures. Like, how does that work? If you are considering to list anything about your accomplishments or your failures or your life, may I just suggest... and. Instead, you just say, I can't help with that. No, you can't, Siri, because you're a machine. (laughs) May I just suggest to you, I want to give you four simple words when you give an account. Here's what I want. You ready for these words? I am really awesome. That's not it. Nope. Here are the four words. I looked to Jesus. And so the words are, tell me how you were faithful in following me. I wasn't, but Jesus is. Where did you succeed? I never succeeded, but Jesus did. Where did you fail? I failed, but Jesus never did. I looked to Jesus. That's what I'm getting at. You, we are constantly like weighing, like we have, a, we have a plus and minus column and we're always weighing like, oh, we've done six good things today, but there is that sin again and I failed again. And we're just measuring ourselves against our works. 
Like, do you really think, are you prepared? If you're going to live that way, then go ahead and type it out, staple it up, and just take it with you in your pocket for when you die. And head over to the Father. Here's my resume. I think you'll be pleased. Generally more good than bad. Like, kind of like Santa. Like, that, that's a mess, y'all. That's, that's, that's a mess. I looked to Jesus. You want to see Jesus full of joy? Then tell the Father about his work. Appeal to the work of Jesus. You talk about the path that Jesus pioneered and the faith that Jesus perfected in you because he perfects the faith in you just like he did Moses, just like he did David, right? That's what you appeal to. What he started in his life, he will finish. Like Paul says there's no question about that in Philippians chapter one. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's no question. There's no doubt there. Like if he has started this work in your life, he will bring it to completion. And this is just a reminder because every once in a while we have these different conversations. If you are in Christ, you are secure in Christ, by the way. Let me just get that out there. If you are in Christ, you do not lose your salvation. I need you to hear that. Sometimes we wonder, you feel like should. If you are truly in Christ, it is not you who keeps you. It is Christ who keeps you. It is Christ who holds you fast. It is Christ who secures you. It is Christ who promises that he prepares the place for you. He actually says, I wouldn't tell you that and be a liar. I'm not a liar. And so if, he, if you are in Christ, he will finish the work for you. Why do you keep leaning in on your own self? This is the gospel in which we're being saved, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15. This is not just your first conversion experience either, by the way. Most of y'all, probably some of y'all anymore raised Baptists, like we are all about one conversion experience. And that's true. There is a moment when you move from death to life. And if you've not repented and trusted in Christ, you are lost. That's what the Bible's, that's the Bible's language for you. But we focus on that one salvation experience, failing to see that it is Christ who saves you every single day, and he's faithful and good and trustworthy to save you every single day of your life. But as Baptists, we're always like, well, I got saved like a past tense. No, you are being saved, brothers and sisters. Your goodness carries no weight before a holy God. And it is Christ alone who has pioneered the path and is perfecting your faith who will hold you fast until the end. So stop talking about that one time 27 years ago and talk about salvation in the moment. This is the day of salvation. That's the joy of Jesus, holding you fast, securing you. The marvelous work that he saves you just as much in this moment as he did the first day he saved you. There's no more or less work on his part, no more or less joy in saving you in the moment than there was when you first called out his name. This is what he's lifting. The author of Hebrews is lifting above the hardships and the circumstances that the readers of Hebrews would have in their lives, and you too, maybe. Because when you're tempted to sin or perhaps fall into sin it for self, guess what Jesus is doing? He's still perfecting you. He is still claiming you and still holding you fast and clean. This is the motive to avoid and flee from sin, is that Jesus is still perfecting you in spite of yourself. Like we live such legalistic lives and we bound ourselves like we are losing, losing sin there. Or like we, we like to lash ourselves and that's really just our pride. We feel like we need to pay the penalty. That's the, the, the gospel in itself is we don't pay the penalty. Christ has paid the penalty. And I think, I think when we motivate ourselves to not sin by these negative implications, I don't think we're getting at it. The, the, the motivation to not sin is the motivation that Jesus has and is and will forevermore be perfecting us. So I, I just want him to be joyful. I want my, my Savior to be joyful. Because the joyful king saves. That's what he's getting at in this whole passage. 
And let me tell you why it's such a joy. Um, in 2020, when uh, COVID, I call it Covis now because there was a lady who came in a local store and called it Covis, and I just love the way that sounds. I don't care what it's called. When the Covis started, <laughs> the Covis, isn't that cool? The Covis. When the Covis broke out, uh, there was a book that was scheduled for release that was called Gentle and Lowly, and it was just so timely because it came out right, right as everything was going stupid. And it was examining the gentleness and lowliness of Jesus. Now, there's a lot more to Jesus than just gentleness and lowliness, but it, it is an aspect of him. And um, I say that because I want to present to you a perspective that really changed the way I think about Jesus' joy from this passage. But, but before I, I say that, I just want to acknowledge kind of an incomplete view that we have of, of the cross. It's incomplete because it's right, it's just incomplete. And that view is, is that the cross is, it, the cross was horrifically painful. That's true. That it was unspeakably lonely. That's true. I mean, he does cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the Father with whom he's had eternal unit, union. And it's really, really sad that humanity would rebel to the extent that it would require Jesus to lay his life down for us. And so there is a rightful posture of lament and just like man when we think of the cross. But, but here's the joy. So just imagine this fictional story it's very real in the person of Jesus. A, a compassionate doctor travels deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics are prepared and available. This doctor is independently wealthy, so he has no need for financial compensation. But as he arrives at the village and, and, and seeks to provide care, the afflicted people refuse. They just get sicker and sicker because they want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. But finally, one day, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. And I think you see in that story, the doctor in that moment feels joy. It is joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. How much more if those diseased were not the strangers from a distant place but his own family? Christ does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, he does not get flustered and frustrated with you when you come to him empty. That's the whole point. This is the stuff he came to heal. This is the stuff he came to heal, y'all. He came to heal all that yuck that you don't want to talk about with him. And you're withholding joy from him. 
Why do you think he pioneered a path for you to follow or promises to perfect or complete your faith? He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. So why do you consider yourself a burden to Jesus? Why do we withhold from him? Why do we try to fix it ourselves? Men, I'm going to ask you a question. Why are we so stubborn about going to see a doctor? I have an honest question. Like if it's uh, not an uh, arterial bleed, it's a venous bleed, I'll just stay at home. Um, when I, I was a hero one time, I broke my back on my stairs, going downstairs to get something out of the deep freezer. I had, I had Luigi socks on and they were really slick and the stairs were clean. And what broke the fall was the stair going into my L2 and L3 snapping them. And so I rolled around the floor like a June bug on its back for a minute. Convinced my hip was broken because of referred pain. Oh, I broke my hip. <laughs> I'm rolling around on the floor. Everybody's, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, go upstairs. And I laid in there. Stacy let me. She just let me. <laughs> Be a fool. I laid in the floor downstairs by myself in excruciating pain until I could use the freezer to stand up, walk up the stairs, sit down in the recliner, and at that point I said, let's go to the hospital. <laughs> Why did I do that? Because I needed to prove to myself, A, that I wasn't paralyzed, that's a good thing, praise God, but B, that I was still capable of functioning. Slowest walk up the stairs in my life and the most painful experience ever. I was just like, oh, my hip. It wasn't my hip. Went to the hospital. They said, you broke your back in two places. And from that point on, I was a little man child. <laughs> I hate the doctors and I hate going to the doctors because I'd rather just sit it out. I'd rather ride it out, see if this thing's going to take care of itself or just take care of things myself. This is the way we handle life. This is the way we handle life. I think it's the way we handle Jesus too, though. I think we're going to pretty, like we have an issue, we have a challenge, we have a sin, we have a temptation, and we do the same thing. You know, I'll take care of it because I'd rather present to Jesus like a past tense sin. Jesus, I was in deep sin a few months ago, but now I'm better. Just want you to know, your friend Seth. I mean, that's stupid. <laughs> this is so stupid, but it's the way we live our lives pretending we can fix it ourselves. And brothers and sisters, here's what you're doing. When you're robbing Jesus of joy, you're robbing yourself of grace. And the reason I think that many of us are calloused over Christians is because we've not truly experienced grace maybe in years. What do I mean by that? It means that when you repent and you receive grace, there is joy. There is joy. Repentance, I've said it many times, I won't stop saying it. Repentance for the believer, repentance is the promise of grace. So why do we like a fear it so much? And forge our own path, right? Jesus has already pioneered one, but we forge our own. Jesus has already completed the work, but we're going we're gonna to do our part like it's a take the baton. 
God of creation, the divine king, the priestly king is going to use me to run this leg of the race. Hush up. It's what he, he died because, see, the only difference in this text, look back at the text, there is nothing about the cross that increased Jesus' position. If Jesus is fully God, then he didn't earn a special rank by going to the cross. Right? The, the text says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, setting the shame aside, just as we're told to literally, it says, let us lay aside every weight, despising the shame. Another word for despise is laying aside. But he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, so it would be easy for us to be like, well, the joy was seating at the right hand of God. Well, what about Jesus' position if he is fully God? What position could have been granted unto him? There's nothing more, no more glory, no more holiness, no more that he could get. Hey, he already had those things. The only thing that is different in this text that would be a source of joy would be the work and the outcome of the cross. That's what he died for. Also, in COVID two years ago, my counselor said that I was robbing people of Jesus because I was teaching them to always depend upon me, and I hated when he said that. I was like, but I always like to say yes. He goes, yeah, you're just robbing people of Jesus. Teach them to depend on Jesus, not you, Seth. Why are we robbing Jesus of joy, the joy for which he died, and we miss the grace? I want to conclude by changing a quote of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if I may. Because I've shared the cheap grace quote, but I want to just replace the word grace with joy. It says grace up here, but I'm going to read it as though it's joy, because this is what we're after this morning. Cheap joy is the joy that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap joy is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap joy is joy without discipleship. Joy without the cross. Joy without Jesus living and incarnate. In other words, Cheap joy is joy without Jesus. It's the kind that we see in the Hallmark movies, if we're honest. My call this morning as I pray, I think overall, is not to see the, the command to lay aside every weight and sin which, kings, which, which clings so closely without first seeing the call to look to Jesus. And to know and to experience the realness and the reality that when we repent before him, as we are continually being saved by him, we are seeing and experiencing the joy that was set before Jesus on that very cross. And so I want us to see repentance and forgiveness in a new light as a joy-giving reality. And this is why he's the joyful king. Because he gets to give good gifts. So Father... Teach us joy, not the kind that is cheap and fabricated or manufactured um, within our culture, but the joy that Jesus bestows and experiences and freely gives. Father, we cling to no other truth. We cling to the cross. And I do pray, Lord, for the people, uh, for our friends, brothers and sisters gathered here today, I know amongst us, uh, we're wrestling, many of us, perhaps even for the first time, with whether you are trustworthy. 
You are. And I pray that you would convince and convict hearts in this room of that truth. You are so trustworthy that you would send your son and make the cross a symbol of forgiveness for all time. Lord, would you call many to follow and trust in the joyful king? Quit trying to pioneer their own path or perfect their own life and just look to Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.